Welcome, welcome everyone to The Lift. I'm so excited for this episode 25 because we have a special guest and I'm very excited about it. I'm Tyra and I'm Linda. And we're excited to chat with you today a little bit about, um, you know, the perspective from a a CEO business owner relative to supervision, particularly new supervisors. So Linda, why don't you tell everybody who our special, awesome, amazing guest is today? I'm so excited to introduce um, really a great person and one of my best friends, um, Jonathan Mueller. Um, Jonathan and I go way back, probably a decade now. Um, We work together at Trumpet Behavioral Health. And if I'm not mistaken, we both entered Trumpet about the same time in 2012. Jonathan, with a background in business development and nonprofit um, uh, kinds of organizations. And of course, me with a background in clinical psych, behavior analysis, and uh, and supervision and leadership. And you at the same time. Oh, that's true. Yes, you're right. We That was a good year, like a wine <laughs> year. <laughs> but uh, Jonathan's role at that time was business development. That is thinking about where there might be new opportunities um, for our company to grow. And in later iterations of himself, he served as a regional director, actually managing from an operations perspective um, entire sections. And I think his region was three states. Um, You know, he also was a person who was intellectually curious and willing to throw effort and um, and intellectual capability at problems. And we were fortunate enough to actually do some research together and publish that. So he has a, a broad background that is really sprinkled with the greatness of curiosity and willingness to bring effort to the table. Um, one other thing I want to say uh, about um, Jonathan and our history together is, you know, I think we're both pretty energetic, enthusiastic people. And one of the first times that Jonathan and I met each other, we we went to a, a NBA basketball game here in Denver with um, our two partners, uh, Chris and Lanny, and we saw this awesome cupcake cart in the venue. And I got so excited. I jumped with both feet into the air and Jonathan remarked on that. Yes, fully off the floor excitement about a cupcake. And I think we knew we were going to be besties from then forward. <laughs> I, you know, I had totally forgotten that cupcake story and uh, that that um, oh, I, I remember that game fondly. You know what else I remember? And by the way, if this is the 25th episode, I think in, in wedding anniversaries, isn't that like silver? So maybe there's oh like gosh. a silver tinge to this. Episode. <laughs> I, I'm like, I, I can't tell you how honored I am to be uh, just, you know, having having this conversation with with y'all. But one thing. I appreciate is, uh, you know, we all did start around the same time in 20 early 2012. And 
um, both of you were willing to just like bring me along in tow <laughs> to, to, to centers to see services in action. Um, I got to see the FAs that, that, that Tyra showed me. Linda, I got to trail you all over creation, all over the country uh, and, uh, and seeing our teams. And so um, I appreciate you all channeling your mentor and coach um, skills with me. Uh, you know, Jonathan, the picture that shows up on my phone when you text or call me is actually a photo I took of you while helping me run a functional analysis. Um, I think you were doing the no attention condition or something like that. So you were like seated on this tiny little like preschool chair, you know, <laughs> probably one butt cheek only. Um, and you had a magazine or something and you're just like being completely stoic. Uh, and that um, day was one of my fondest memories because you were just like, jumping out of your skin to see this technology uh, in play. And it's it's always been such a pleasure to work with you. You have an infectious energy of just like, let's get out there and do good in the world. And um, so I, I love it when I see that photo. Thank you, Tyra. I, you know, I, I I have to say I I appreciate that I I did um, stand up to the, or I, I I portrayed a stoicism that I I knew I had to do in the uh, in the non attention condition. Inside, I was a freaking mess. Like, there's this kiddo who's coming to me and wanting to engage. And yeah, like, Mister, Mister, look yes. at me. It was so oh, cute. I was torn up inside. I'm like, no, okay, for the sake of the FA, I knew what I had to do. But that, I was just like, Ugh. it's like one of those things you walk out of the room afterwards and just like all the emotion comes out. It was uh, uh, it, it was a great learning experience. It was yeah. awesome. I think that kid might have even tried to pry your eyes open because you sort of like at one point went to your like Zen place and the kid was like, excuse me, excuse me, mister. It was adorable. Oh. Oh, thank you. Well, <laughs> and, and I think that story really um, tells a lot about Jonathan as a person, primarily uh, with a business background, but I think also kind of a, a liberal arts background. Uh, you've subsequently went on to get your MBA um, and currently are the co-CEO at Ascend, which is an early intervention ABA provider and also Element revenue cycle management, which um, is a, a company that you've created based on your goal to really democratize access to services. And I want to hear a little bit about that. But let me say this, um, you embraced that, you know, you weren't just working in a business, you were working in a provider organization that it was designed to make the lives of these clients better. And you endeavored to learn as much as you could along the way, including some of the lingo. Yep. And I think both Tyra and I are eternally grateful for that. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing now at Ascend and Element and in your cool podcast. I, uh, I as always, I'm just trying to keep myself out of trouble. Um, <laughs> no, you know, I so about um, almost five years ago, had an opportunity um, uh, actually two of the other regional directors and I, um, at Trumpet were laid off in October, 2017. Um, and so that's one of those things where, you know, I had three young kids and had recently finished my MBA, but was like, what do I do next? And almost immediately it was obvious that I wanted, um, I and my two co-founders, Dr. Mike Wright and Will Bainig, um, we wanted to create the organization that we always wanted to be a part of. And 
because I have the benefit of working with each of you, not just to understand the, the beauty and genius of our science, but how to do so and create the systems that, that work at scale. We knew what clinical quality looked like. And we knew what we wanted to be able to, to, to do for kiddos. And so Ascend was born in November, 2017. And, um, uh, you know, over the last five years, that's been an extraordinary and a humbling journey. And um, our big focus has been, you know, we like to think about where, uh, like Wayne Gretzky says, right? Don't skate to the puck, skate to where the, the puck's going to be. Mm-hmm. And where the puck, in my humble estimation, <laughs> over the coming years will be, um, is we're going to get out of this nonsense of getting paid for every billable hour we provide. Um, and instead we're gonna to move toward being paid for the value we create for our, for our clients. And, um, and that feels really important. And we, we've seen that in other aspects of healthcare. And, um, and don't get me wrong, moving toward a value-based care world like that is, uh, um, is not easy, but it's, um, it feels really important to maximize our ability to provide highest quality, highest value services to our consumers. It helps to align a critical stakeholder in our payers. And so um, you know, we've built out um, uh, at Ascend a whole series of uh, we are you know, early intervention focused, but the reason we did that is because it allowed us to much more deeply serve, deeply serve and address the breadth of needs that mm. we observed our clients and their family had. So for example, getting access to highest quality um, uh, diagnostic evaluations that actually differentially diagnose, right? As opposed to just being an autism puppy mill. Oh, come on in and you, you get an ADOS for a couple hours that you're diagnosed. Now go get into services. So that was one component that felt important. Um, you know, families come to us generally because they have questions and they're really scared and being able to answer their questions and do high quality evaluations, um, uh, uh, felt like a really important skill set. So we have psychologist teams, um, across all our States. And the other thing was, um, just mental health. I think more broadly as a, if there's anything good that's come out of COVID, it's that people are having conversations about mental health. And, um, and so we built out, you know, a, a social worker team that can work directly with parents, um, you know, as they're going through that, the, the grieving process for the child they thought that they had, which by the way, Tyra, that expression, which just like clarified so many things to me is something I learned from you way back in 2012, 2013, but that's what we observe and that's what parents tell us. So anyway, that, that's what we're up to at Ascend. And we, over the next five years, our vision is we want to be the, the, the beacon on the hill for highest quality pediatric autism therapy that actually addresses the range of, of family's needs. And we want to do it in a reinforcing culture. Um, and that's a huge part of my passion is, is how we create environments in which our team members, um, or as we call them in the center, our partners can succeed, um, but in a, in a really reinforcing environment. So that's, um, that's Ascend. And um, at Element, we started Element a little over a year ago, Will Bainig and I, uh, my co-founder and business partner, co-CEO, um, because we wanted to democratize access to the highest quality billing and insurance and other functions. Um, that, it's the uh, stuff that's hard for a lot of ABA provider organizations that have been started by clinicians. That's not what they're good at, you right. know, like checking authorizations and, you know, credentialing and, you know, all of that kind Reading of stuff. contracts. <laughs> it, it's, it's, I, and no one is taught this. It, it, there's, um, it's extraordinary because, you know, by last count, I think a stat I saw is there are about 7,000 ABA providers out there. Um, the wow. vast, vast majority, over 80, maybe 90% are sort of single site, 
and um, and not only are, are are we not taught these things in graduate school or undergrad, um, it's just arcane and really hard work. Uh, and oh, by the way, it's that much harder in a newer field like ours in ABA, right? Where funding mechanisms only came into place 10 plus years ago. So anyway, you know, the largest organizations um, have access to resources uh, to be able to do those functions well. Um, and all the rest are learning it on the fly. And that's yes. what I think has always been really hard is like, how do you, uh, we're all reinventing the wheel, right? Yep. And so we wanted to be, um, yeah, again, a, a source of light and share um, our expertise and be a partner to ABA providers in the revenue cycle. And so out as part of that, interestingly, last December, you know, I've been listening to podcasts for um, years, uh, probably a decade plus now. Um, and I've, I've fallen in love with um, just everything that I can learn through them. And, uh, and I said, you know what, I want to start a podcast of my own. And I don't care if I get a single listener. <laughs> Very selfishly is if I'm able to have conversations <laughs> with people, um, like then I, I'm, I'm going to be happy. And so uh, the podcast building better businesses in ABA has that same aim to democratize access to the insights and everything else candidly everything that like i've failed at in the last 10 plus years in in, in the field and and hopefully i've learned a little bit from um and kind of that, that mission to if you learn something don't keep it as proprietary help others know how to succeed our our profession is going to succeed families with a, a family member uh who is autistic they're going to succeed if we all share the knowledge as we gain it, especially if you gained that knowledge through making a mistake, because mm -hmm. if you like figuring something out, how to do something faster, more efficiently, or, you know, in a sparkly or more way is awesome. But when you learn from making a mistake, that's the stuff we have to share because to not do so means you are ensuring that lots of other people are going to make that same mistake. That's exactly right. Um, and, and, and in, in my view, I'm robbing people of an opportunity to learn. Yeah. Um, and so that's where I just feel this, um, I don't know, just this extraordinary conviction, uh, that I want to give away everything I know for free. Um, <laughs> Uh, that I think um, our field um, is a better field when we actively collaborate with one another, which sounds kind of cliched, but um, I, you know, to your point, Linda, there are so many kiddos that need to be served. There are so many. And, um, and I always channel this Peter Thiel expression, competitions for losers. And I feel very strongly about that, that um, uh, collaboration is what um, uh, will float all boats. So, uh, so yeah, so that's, that's the podcast. I was I was very fortunate to have Linda on talking about um, uh, supervision uh, just a little while ago, and um, uh, I recently had uh, Dr. Rohit Berman, Lanny Fritz on. We we're talking about profitability. Yeah, the the old trumpet gag. It's so fun getting the band back together. <laughs> Even had uh, Emily Varon on, who's a sleep expert at BCBA, and she did a diagnosis, like a uh, like live consultation with me about my sleep. Spoiler alert: I'm not getting great sleep, but I well, believe this about you, Mueller, and I'm glad she gave you some tips. <laughs> Sleeping well is living well. Yes. <laughs> Awesome. Well, so, uh, hey, if you're out there listening and you like uh, this podcast, I think you might want to give Jonathan's podcast a listen as well. Um, great conversations, particularly if you are in any way involved in 
a, a business that is ABA, whether it's for-profit, not-for-profit, independently owned, et cetera, understanding the basics of how a business can survive in order to continue to be able to provide quality services is something that anyone who is delivering services should know at least a little bit about. And if you uh, own your own organization and struggle with some of these kinds of things, um, this is a great place to go to get some of the pearls of wisdom uh, on a podcast. Jonathan, so, can you say the name of it again? Building Better Businesses in ABA. BBB. Yeah, ABA. BBB, ABA. That's right. And it's right at uh, elementrcm.ai is where the um, uh, all of those episodes live and on your favorite Fair. podcast channels. Fantastic. So, you know, Jonathan, you mentioned that I was on your podcast and we were talking about supervision and mentorship. And now we've got you here to offer that um, the perspective of a business owner, of a person with training in business. Um, Do you think supervision is important and why? Why does it matter? Supervision is the most important. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I, I appreciate your generosity of having training in business. I, I like to think of like I went out and got my rickety MBA, right? <laughs> it's almost like that's a minimum competence. That's nowhere near proficiency. But one of the things that I've, as, as I think about the role of a CEO or candidly any leader, um, it's to set the vision. It's to build and align the team around that vision. And it's to relentlessly execute. Those are the three fundamental roles of a CEO. And you cannot build and align a team around a vision. You cannot relentlessly execute if you are not providing the highest quality supervision and coaching um, to your team. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But I think coming back to this idea that we are only successful when we pass on our knowledge and, and wisdom um, is... You know, I think about this as how am I helping the, you know, that uh, C-level, right, um, uh, CFOs, COOs, how am I helping VP level or directors, whomever it may be, those who um, are in senior positions, um, you know, my role as a CEO is not to be the doer. And I have to gut check myself if I start <laughs> like doing things. Instead, um, my role is to help like I won't say build, uh, a lot of times people in those positions have many of those skills, but help to shape and polish and provide feedback um, in a um, safe learning environment. Uh, and that's, that, that's my obligation as a leader. And, and, when I, when I, and that also goes in line with this principle that I've always thought about of acting in the highest and best use of your leadership, which is actually borrowed from uh, a broader clinical philosophy around highest and best use of your license, right? So as a, as a BCBA, generally, you want BCBAs <laughs> doing what only they can do, which is providing great, you know, case supervision, case management, and, and the quality assurance function and all of that. You don't want a BCBA day-to-day providing direct treatment. Um, that, that's what an RBT is for. Um, the same thing goes here is as a CEO, as a leader, is how am I operating in highest and best use of my uh, leadership, and that's all about uh, coaching and high-quality supervision 
of teams. It's about being the chief reminding officer around values. That's part of uh, setting setting the vision, right? Is I'm going to be constant. I'm 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 going to be like this broken record around what our values are about the direction we're heading, um, and and that's okay um, because that's um, that's how I believe you create organizations that top to bottom um, actually demonstrate in their in behaviors <laughs> an organization's values as opposed to just slapping them on a wall or a coffee mug. Right on. Um, I love chief reminder officers. <laughs> I think that's a, a very cool term. Um, well, given that you answered in the positive very robustly that you do think supervision is critically important, maybe you can talk a little bit about some needs that you see both in your organization and maybe in other organizations um, related to supervisory skills, right? Like what are the things <clears throat> that you're looking for, but what are the things that like maybe consistently folks either don't have at all or don't have mastered that you still kind of need to support <clears throat> them through with some additional coaching or training. Uh, and, you know, like any kind of supervising, right? It doesn't have to be BCBAs that are supervising clinical folks. It could be other individuals in your um, organization. I think the most important, Tyra, um, and candidly, this is something that every day I have to work on, is the ability to provide constructive feedback. Hmm. And um, I think we're providing constructive feedback is hard to do in any organization. I think in a field like ours, where we are so passionate and caring about our teams, about the clients we serve, it feels like it's a punishment providing constructive feedback. And, um, and that's just not the case. The only way to grow, if we think about some of our you know, most influential supervisors in the past and our mentors, mm -hmm. guess what? They, I got a ton of constructive <laughs> feedback. And I remember that constructive feedback way more. And I grew way more from that constructive feedback um, than from other positive feedback. Yes, the positive feedback and the reinforcement um, uh, on the behaviors they wanted to see, that was that's critical. But um, I, I think coming back to this idea of we're robbing our supervisees of the opportunity to learn if we're not helping to shape them. And so um, I think, uh, but, but it's an unnatural skill. And I, I happen to think it goes against sort of our instincts as a human being where we're drawn into tribes, right? And we have to get along in this tribe. Um, otherwise, the saber-toothed tiger is going to eat us, right? Or the next tribe over the hill is going to come and, and take over. Um, and so I think um, that just takes a ton of shaping. And again, it's something I've had to work on um, for the entirety of, of my career. Um, and, and one of the things actually I remember, Linda, at one point, um, I think it was you describing, you know, there, there's just not like, an evidence base around like sandwich method feedback or like three to one or, or God forbid the pizza, let's go to seven to one. Right. Like the, <laughs> it's, it's not like, they're not these little gimmicks about how to provide feedback. It's you just got to get in and you got to start doing it. And what I and think you got to figure out how that person needs to hear it. 100%, 100%, Linda, I, we, we have to deliver feedback in a way that truly values someone. And I think that's the important, when, when I'm about to go into a constructive feedback conversation, the last thing I say before I get into that conversation is, um, 
or, or the last thing I would remind myself about is how do I make sure I'm coming across in a way that I truly care about this person and their growth? Um, and that's not meant to soften the blow. Of, there's not softening the blow, right? Feedback is our breakfast of champions. It's just, that's like, this is, this is what we should be hungry for. So just provide it directly and, and plainly. So I think that's a really important um, uh, skill set that candidly, because it doesn't get taught, um, ABA providers need to spend time on that. And I think that's some of the most valuable time. Um, I, I think the other thing um, that, you know, we're not necessarily taught in school, at least I was never taught in the MBA programs or my undergrad Asian studies economics degree or elsewhere, um, is just like really good time man management and then subsequently delegation and ensuring something happens to your, you know, um, level of hope for quality. Um, and time management, I think, is just a, is, is when we have such high stake jobs, and I'm going to describe the work we do in our field is freaking high stake. It's the difference between a kiddo achieving life changing outcomes or not. Yeah. We have these high stake jobs. Um, you know, we have to get really good um, at, um, uh, at how we are using our time day to day. And that's just, again, it's just a different muscle that has to get built. Um, that there's some wonderful books out there. In fact, your all supervision books talk about time management and um, important tricks. I, I love the rocks, pebbles, sand, which I still remember, I think, gosh, back from 2013. Uh, and the idea of when you're going to plan out your week, um, you know, first start with the rocks, the things that can't move, right? And then fill it in with pebbles and around it. And then the sand, right? Stuff that's more flexible. And these are like basic tools, but they end up becoming hard to implement in practice, especially when there's fires everywhere, right? And, yeah. and you always describe fires trump systems, right? And, and it's really important that we're helping our supervisees, our coaches to, uh, to build those time management repertoires. Yeah. And I always say that. that, I always say that fires trump systems with a sad note in my voice. I wish fires did not trump systems, but in fact, uh, they often do. So I agree, Jonathan. And I think, you know, the Sometimes it's hard to see how the being organized and managing your time well feeds into supervision. And I think it's because it's a necessary but not sufficient component. If you do, if you are not organized in how you use your time, stuff falls off the priority list. And very often it's that take the extra moment to give your person feedback, to be around for them to think about their future development that doesn't seem like it's on fire, which means you've got to kind of have your stuff on lockdown and taken care of so that you then have the capacity to pay attention to what's around you and be present and, you know, behave in a way that really does value your people and feels valuable to your people. Those are good ones for sure. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Linda, I actually have a sign up in my office that says be present. And that's a reminder. I partly, you know, I, I got diagnosed with um, ADHD and generalized anxiety as an adult. So that's a little part of that. But the other part of it is, um, especially in, in the remote environments we work in, it is so critical that we are fully present. I mean, within any meeting, certainly, but certainly in any supervision meeting, right? Because um, it's really easy to see through someone who's not present and that immediately sends a, a signal of like, yeah, I don't care um, at best. 
um, or like, hey, my supervisor isn't isn't really here to help me grow. And so um, that idea of being present is um, is critical because that's where you pick up subtle cues around. Ooh, here's a learning opportunity, right? And okay, let's not rob my supervisee of this mm-hmm. moment to learn, even if it's going to take a little time to provide that feedback and answer their questions and um, yeah. whatever else comes. And even when you're giving that feedback, like really being present, not just in your own head of these are the seven things I need to say, but here's what I'm saying. And here's how this person is reacting. And I can respond to that as well. Does this seem like it's landing in a way that suggests they really believe that I care about them, their success Mm -hmm. and the success of our families? Or does it seem like they are responding to something totally different? So I think that that presence really moment to moment, second to second is what transforms almost any interaction with someone, maybe even the person who supervises you, if you have one of those or the people you supervise, um, You know, in our workbooks, um, and and this was absolutely Tyra's um, idea of the interlocking relationships and the infinity symbol that represents the RBTs, brand new people learning the skills, that new supervisor and the consulting supervisor. And, you know, our field is really, we're hurting a bit because so many of the people in our field are very new to supervision. And I mean, just a hot second ago, they were being supervised, hopefully by someone who's a great supervisor, but probably by someone who's a relatively new supervisor. And then boom, now they're a new supervisor. (laughs) And to really flip that mindset of I'm not supposed to just be the sponge. Now I have to be the giver. Um, Like that is a real shift in worldview, but the connectedness between those three relationships in our new world, where a, a new BCBA who is supervising others really needs to have that more experienced mentor not just on their behavioral skills altogether, but specifically on their supervision. Like our field has shifted gears, you know, like we need to be focused and all hands on deck effort at helping people master this role of supervisor and to do it quickly. So that idea of the infinity symbol was really about under this arrangement, you've got three people and they are connected. The more experienced person, the new BCBA, and everyone being supervised by that new BCBA. But it is not unidirectional. The infinity symbol means my wisdom is going through you and hopefully to them and the feedback on what it was like for them to learn that is coming right back from them and through the new supervisor and also back to the consulting supervisor so that hopefully everybody learns something as a product of that relationship. 
Tyra, I love that image and that way of thinking and total props to you. Um, I, I, you know, Tyra and I tend to have these conversations just away from computer and just talking about how we think about things. I think this is one of those things that sprouted. And then she was like, I'm going to go and work this into an image that we can hold on to. And I think you totally nailed it. Um, Jonathan, how does that notion of if we all respect that connection and the desire for learning and growth, how does that fit into your company? What do you do, whether it be at Ascend or Element? Um, do you see that? Do you do things to try to foster that connectedness? I think it's um, uh, that connectedness um, and that ability to allow others to learn and then to feedback loops is so is so phenomenally important. By the way, the imagery I get and why I love the infinity symbol, like it, it makes me think of Buzz Lightyear to infinity and beyond, which is like <laughs> this rallying cry, right? Which I think we have to have in our field, this rallying cry. By the way, there's a wonderful book, sorry, a little tangential called Moonwalking with Einstein um, that talks about a reporter who um, actually goes and he says, I want to compete in the world memory championships. There, Yes, there are actually like official games of the world memory championships. Anyway, the book, no spoilers, but he actually trains in the discipline of improving your memory, which you can do. It's a muscle like any others. But there's this point of um, uh, the, to make things memorable, you have to have these dramatic images that couple the words. Um, and uh, if you go and just read the first page of the book, you'll know exactly what's, uh, uh, what I'm talking about. But the hey, point is, um, yes, this is a route like the buzzier um, uh, 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 rallying cry. And, and let me say this as well. I think one of the most important things, uh, there's so many important things that have come out of this development of the consulting, this, this notion of a consulting supervisor. I think one of the most, if, if we were to look back like five years from now, um, it's the idea that we've now created a new sort of mental paradigm around uh, supervision and learning that we can always be learning as supervisors mm -hmm. and as leaders. And should and anyone, be. And should be. And anyone who thinks, oh, I've made it to this level. Now I'm good. Dude, get, get out of my house. I, I don't like, I don't want to, I'm yeah. not going to hang out with you. Right. And so I, I think it's enshrining this idea, um, kind of what I was it Einstein that said, if we're not learning, we're dying. Um, but it's, it's helping to enshrine this idea of being a lifelong supervisor and learner. So uh, with that whole preamble, coming back to your question, Linda, how, how have we built that infinity symbol um, into, into our organization? So, you know, at Ascend, I think, um, one of the things that I'm, there are many things I'm proud of. Um, and, um, and those are entirely because of the strong efforts of our team. Um, but one of those things was a little over a year ago, we launched our first Ascend Leadership Academy. And um, with the express, and, and it's hard, it's like six months long. Um, and it's like meeting every two weeks, you've got um, you know, accountability triads are a part of it. There's formal learning each month on new topics that tie back to our values, behaviors, and things. Um, but with the idea being that we want to, our goal at any given time is 10% every year, 10% of the people in our organization are going through this leadership academy. Mm -hmm. And we are helping them become the next best iteration of their leadership selves. And here's what's really important is like leadership is just a freaking title. And I'll be honest, like I don't give a shit about titles. <laughs> titles mean nothing to me. 
what means everything are the behaviors you demonstrate as a leader. And um, and so we have RBTs in it. We've got you know operations um, teams. We've got VP level. I mean, it's every le- level. Being a leader is about the behaviors you demonstrate, not not your title and your set of responsibilities. So that's on the ascent side. I think one of the things and, and element. You know, we're smaller. Um, you know, just about a year old. We've got a, a, about ten team members. But one of the first things that um, that we put in place um, was a system that allows us to be. Um, I'm not going to call it a supervisory system, but a tool that allows us to be consistent about our expectations around how a supervisor um, can interact with their team. And it's 15.5 is the name of it, but you know, there there are dozens of these out there. Um, But we happen to really like this because um, it sets up very specifically every week, you're asking of your supervisee to spend 15 min- minutes filling out just a series of questions and those change week to week, um, putting in sort of a pulse score, just an easy Likert scale. And, um, and this, this idea of self-reflection feels like a critical part of a learning process for anyone and, and especially a supervisee. So there's this check-in that's submitted and a supervisor reviews that, um, spends five minutes providing feedback, giving high fives, right? There are ways to reinforce behaviors. And then there's this formal structure to the one-on-one. And this is something I learned from both of you all. Again, coming back to what do good supervision systems look like? You got to have an agenda going in, (laughs) right? And, And start with like a values moment. By the way, every meeting should always start with a values moment. Ask, what are your successes and stressors, right? Because in spite of the best agenda, what, what your supervisee answers on that is probably what's biggest on their mind and they might need help with. Um, and then it, there's a built-in way that, you know, you take notes, follow up on action items. Um, and, and you know, it, it's, a, I think, part of the challenge of supervision not and people not having done it before is they just don't have some of the those those tools or the yeah, repertoires yeah. on here's what we got to do week to week right like the, the actual behaviors we're engaging in and so um that's felt like something that's really important and the power of that is now we've promoted people into supervisory positions at, at element um and um and that's just because I very strongly believe that organizations need to create career pathing and professional development opportunities. Um, and so um, that kind of structure, I think we've found has um, helped to set some clear expectations around what good, at least in this case, what good check-ins and one-on-one meetings every week uh, look like to make your supervisee successful. I love what you just said, Jonathan. And it, you know, uh, I love it and hate it. I love that you said it. I'm sorry that it exists. But that notion that for a lot of people, they've never had an experience where meeting with their supervisor involved a structured agenda, a focus on values, a kind of um, a push to reflect and plan. And from my perspective, what I most want is to kind of create a whole generation of people who experience supervision that way. And Mm -hmm. that's the only way they know to do it. So of course they do that in the future and they do that in the future. And we kind of reap the benefits generationally by giving people who are learning to supervise and are being supervised right now a way to do it with their people, you know, if they take that responsibility of paying it forward, such that maybe one day we'll get to the point where 
Everybody assumes that's what good supervision is. Organized, planful, reflective, problem solving, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, we don't need any zombie apocalypse up in here. We need, we need to we need to tip the scales the other way. Yeah. Well, you know, thank you for pointing out that notion of self-reflection and self-evaluation and how that fits into the supervisory relationship. That's definitely a big theme uh, in these workbooks and you know, the, the workbooks are designed so that generally that consulting supervisor is going to do the reflection first. They're going to guide that new supervisor through it yep. and then say, hey, new supervisor, guess what you need to do? Now go guide your trainees through some kind of version of this. You know, obviously what you reflect on, what you self-assess is going to be a little more complex or advanced if you've been in the field longer, but the, the repertoire of doing that, of just pause for a moment, think about what you know and what you don't know and think <laughs> about what someone else might think you don't know and reflect on why that matters and how you're doing things and plan for, Hey, I get this time with someone else, whether they are my peer whether they are my supervisee, whether they are my supervisor, I get this time with another human and I want to use it wisely. Mm -hmm. And I want it to be informed by me thinking about what I most need to get and what I most need to give. And I ought to be doing both of those in every one of those interactions. So it's a little bit blow up the hierarchy you know, it's it, it's <laughs> not top down, um, mm -hmm. but also that your best strategy for making the most of any of those relationships is going to be based on self-reflection, self-evaluation. And to be honest with you, when we are too busy, when we're disorganized, when we're not managing our time, we don't have the headspace to do that self-reflection and self-evaluation. It never rises to the top of the priority, although arguably it should, right? So part of these workbooks are to create some structure and some little pokes and prods around that. Hey, mm -hmm. assess on this. Think about that. Like if, if you're in the business of, I got to do all the tasks, well, these are tasks, so go do them as right. well. And, and that might inform um, a more impactful mm. conversation, you yeah. know? You know, what, what, what strikes me as you're describing that, Linda, is, um, and this is easy to forget, but with a great supervisor, that's a really reinforcing meeting. In fact, yeah, that could be yeah. one of the most powerful um, check-ins or meetings that you have um, on your calendar every week. And so, you know, the flip side, one of my biggest pet peeves is when, um, uh, when, when I hear a new supervisor, uh, and to be clear, this is like a, a not yet have a skill, right? So it's my job to help them understand, um, would say, oh yeah, this person's doing great. So we'll just check in ad hoc, right? Or we'll do it like when they need it, right? Oh, and then you end up spending like 90% of your time with the underperformers. It should be the flip side. <laughs> when you're creating, when you have structure and you go into you, your supervision uh, meetings with your supervisee planfully, your supervisee 
is going to see that structure. They're going to feel it's super valuable and super reinforcing. They're going to be hungry for your feedback. And that's a really important litmus test of mm -hmm. a great supervisory session. Um, so yeah. that feels really important to, uh, to channel. Let's spend 90% of our time with our highest performers and, and help make them that much better. The next um, uh, uh, best iteration of themselves as a leader and flip that script around the, the traditional HR notion of, oh, just, just plan around those, uh, uh, you know, those 90% who are underperforming. Yeah. Or I mean, at least purposefully split your time 50, 50, <laughs> right. Exactly. And then hopefully, uh, you know, allocate more and more and more towards the high performers. Um, as you move, maybe your low performers into solid performers, or, Hey, maybe you've completely helped someone do a 180. That's right. And, you know, when you, when you think about like, that is so common, that's so common. There are adages about yes. it. Um, and when you think about like, okay, well, anybody who's a supervisor is also a human being. So what we know about human behavior, we know about their behavior. You know, um, if you are overly focused on making bad things go away, mm -hmm. you're going to really give any discretionary time to problems, to people who are struggling, because you don't want them to create more problems for you, all of which is important. And that's kind of a negative reinforcement function occurring. But the positive reinforcement associated with here's someone who is capable and eager to learn and who could become really magnificent mm -hmm. in so many ways that's a really powerful and enjoyable thing, I think, for the supervisor as well as the supervisee. But it's like some of that enjoyment and positive reinforcement gets kicked to the curb by mm -hmm. the flamethrower of the negative reinforcer, you know, <laughs> like you got to make like, ah, I got to make you go away right now. Mm -hmm. And if, if we don't pause to reflect on, man, what am I doing? Where am I putting my time and why? We may not realize how powerfully some of those negative reinforcers are over controlling our behavior. Like we're just, you're, we're kind of like flying blind as opposed to, wait a minute, what am I doing? Why would I do this? Why would I not do that? <laughs> right. You know, like mm. that to me is um, even as the more experienced supervisor, no matter who you are, like giving yourself those reminders to, to self-reflect on whatever it is, um, that's important. You never need to stop doing that. You don't need to stop learning. You definitely, you got to keep self-reflecting. And I think the thing is, the fact that you can do it doesn't mean that you will do it, right? Like there, all of us, there are lots of things we can do that we may not have done in a month, six months, two years, five years. It's about how am I going to get myself to do the important things mm. given all the other contingencies mm -hmm. and pressures in my everyday experience, you know, and I think that you don't 
do that unless it somehow, unless you've got reminders. So I love the, again, chief reminding officer. I'm <laughs> yep. going to start adding that to my email uh, tagline. Um, but unless you also kind of explicitly know your values. And I think that's another big theme of these workbooks. Know your values. Yep. And if you can't describe them, you can't, um, if you can't describe them for yourself, they may not be controlling your everyday actions as much as you think they are. And there's no way that you can convey them to someone who is really just beginning to develop those ideas and values and guiding principles and North Star themselves. Um, so that theme of like, know your values and take the time, like, and it's hard, you know, sometimes it's not just that you need time. Like it's hard. You got to dig deep and think about what matters and what if I'm not actually doing what matters and that's an owie. Yeah. I, I actually started recommending that supervisors put their values on their agenda, like right up at the top, right? Like just list them there because for me, to your point, Linda, I, I had trouble vocalizing when I was making decisions um, or considerations based on my values. Uh, and I think that's really important. Like we, you can give lip, lip service to values and you can even like look back and label like, oh, thank you so much for Jonathan for doing X, Y, Z. That was really in service of our company's blah, blah, blah value. And that's awesome. But I think more impactful is when we are wrestling with the tough things, specifically um being guided by our values. And so I think as a supervisor, it's great to pop them up there because then when you're talking through things with your supervisee or trainee or even colleague, you can say like, you know, hey, Linda, we have a really tough decision to make about whether or not we should do this or that. We can use our values like, okay, great. Well, if we did this choice, is that in service of all of our values? Well, yes, for this one, but not for that one. Well, what about this other choice? Well, yeah, that actually embodies all of our values and very forward. Cool. Well, that's a no brainer. Now we know how we're going to make this decision. Um, and I think Linda, because, you know, we're living creatures who will allocate, you know, the least amount of effort when possible, we need those reminders um, that sometimes doing the most valuable line thing isn't the fastest or the easiest thing to do. Mm. I I couldn't agree more. You know the uh, knowing our personal values and um and and connecting them with our organization's values like that's such an important exercise that a leader um through effective communication and storytelling like that just needs to happen. And I um you know at, at, at a and I believe in like coming back to this idea of simplicity. Um, at Ascend, we have this acronym PLAY, P-L-A-Y. And those are our values, playful spirit, life-changing, authentic relationships, and 1% better every day. The Y is the D-A-Y at the end. And when it comes to supervision, um, you know, think about, and, or at least the way that, that we describe it at Ascend is life-changing and 1% better every day. That's That's our obligation as leaders and supervisors. And it takes an extraordinary amount of modeling to do that well. And let me give you an example. Um, 
we, we talk all the time in the field about how do we get better as, um, you know, in providing feedback, which I think is an absolutely important, um, you know, as Brene Brown would that's, put it, a power skill. That's life-changing. That's life-changing, right? The, the ability to give feedback. So yes, we have to get really good at that. And I would challenge leaders out there to ask uh, another question simultaneously. And that is, how am I building a culture where people are actively seeking out feedback? Yeah. So that they're open to it. Um, and not just open to it. Sorry, they're hungry for it. Eager. Um, yeah. And eager for it. And that's the kind of culture that feels like, or that that's a the 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 winning recipe um for really successful, transparent, high-performing cultures. And so the only way to create the only place to start in creating that culture of people being hungry for feedback are when you as a leader are hungry for feedback, right? Which I know you all yep. describe in your books. How, do, how are you actively asking for feedback and modeling what that looks like, um, right? And helping shape people to then pinpoint feedback, right? Such a powerful concept um, to, to shape behavior. So uh, that's, that, that's something I'm super passionate about. Right on. You mentioned the kind of values for Ascend, which is a service delivery organization that that you um, co-founded and run. What about Element? Mm. What, how do those values and that notion of like, let's all know our values. We may have values for the organization, but each person's also got to, you know, know what their values are and hopefully make a wise choice about whether this is the right organization. And there's that match yeah. on values, but whether your actual behavior aligns with your values, mm. what are you guys doing at element? Yeah. So in, in our values at element, again, simple four H happy, helpful, honest, hopeful. And um, I love that. Oh my God. I also love that. Cause that's sort of like, <sighs> it's like a lovely <laughs> sigh. <laughs> Uh, the, as you breathe that tire, I just felt like the spring air. Um, <laughs> that, you know, I, uh, I'll come back to simplicity, but um, and this has always been a really important litmus test for me as I think about organizations I want to join. Can the leader like off the cuff say what values, vision, and, and mission are and how those behaviors get reinforced every day? But one thing I like to say about um, um, Element is, you know, we're RCM experts. That's our bailiwick. That's revenue great. cycle awesome. management. So right? thank you. Revenue cycle management, right? The billing and insur insurance and other, all that other, those services uh, that it takes to um, go from providing that high quality treatment all the way through to collecting the cash for it. But being RCM experts, that's not why we do what we do. Why do we do it? Well, because we fulfill our vision of a childhood for every child. That's what we're passionate about. We're passionate about living our mission of strengthening all who improve the lives of children. That's what gets me up every morning. And at Element, what we've done is taken those, and this was like a, a, a new turn at building out, um, uh, or I should say tying our vision, mission, values to day-to-day -day behaviors, is we developed a code of honor and a set of we believe statements. And our code of honor is just, it's 12 things that we, um, um, that we expect of our team members. Um, and, you know, it's whimsical stuff like make your bed, brush your teeth, which means just do like, you know, the, the important blocking and tackling every day. That's just the good hygiene of, you know, of, uh, uh, of your, your role and responsibility uh, to things like um, embracing this idea that um, organizations don't grow, people grow and people in turn grow organizations. Like, so we are constantly committed 
to growth, right? Which then leads to our expectations around training that has to happen. Every single week, everyone is training, right? Study training is something you do, not something you did. Um, and to uh, you know, our final code of honor is, you know, uh, be willing to call and be called on the code because those are the kinds of um, behaviors that um, um, that feel important to me in, in transparent, high-performing organizations. That's our code of honor. And we believe statements because we're serving ABA providers. Um, you know, we read these and every new customer whom we bring on board, we literally go through and read each one together um, uh, with the customer. Uh, and um, these are our commitments, i.e. behaviors that we're signing up for um, when, uh, when, when we serve a customer and, and things like, you know, we believe that you deserve a team as good as you are. We believe in uh, team members who are hungry, humble, and smart, to borrow the, the Pat Lencioni um, uh, framework. Um, you know, we believe in empowering you with data and insights to be the best leader for your organization. And I think, um, you know, step one of being very clear about your values is documenting them and having them be front and center. And step two is doing the shaping and providing the feedback and, and calling one another, right, in ways that value others, but calling one another, um, you know, when we, when we don't see values line behaviors. Because as a leader, it's not about me trying to always go and shape or correct. It's me creating a culture of people will do that peer to peer and supervisor to supervisee day to day as those and, and supervisee to supervisor, hopefully. 100%. Right. So yeah, exactly it's like right. uh, you know, you know, you're a little kid and you get like one of those super awesome rubber bouncy balls from mm. like the machine at the Pete's place for 25 cents, and you think. Like, oh, I'm just going to bounce this once and it's going to be so fun. And you do it way too hard and it like ricochets off every wall. That's kind of for me when I'm thinking about a culture of feedback. Like it needs to be like that where it's just in, in every direction all the time. Agreed. And I think that notion um, of how do I create culture and system and a culture is a kind of system that will live and breathe the same way, whether I'm in the room or not, right? Mm -hmm. That's critical. And that's really critical if an organization is going to be growing. And, you know, you know, you're not going to always be able to be in the room, right? When there's two other people and it's only your client and you're there for every moment, you are there the whole time, but the whole issue is that very rapidly you can't be there every moment. And so it's about how you get people to engage in their world. How do you behave? Which contingencies are you fostering and making strong? And what's going to live when you aren't around anymore? And so always be kind of thinking about how do I behave now that will have a lasting influence when I'm not around. That's right. It, you know, we, so we talk about this exact thing on building better businesses in ABA. And so let me, uh, forgive me for the mountaineering reference, but, you know, love the outdoors in Colorado. But you, when you climb an 8,000 meter peak, right, you get above a certain point and there literally physically is not enough oxygen in the air for you to survive um, long-term. You can delay, right, the necrosis that comes with that, but, but you can't get past it. I, that's called the death zone. And I think organizations face, you know, it, it depends on uh, different organizations are different, but when you get to, 
you know, serving um, in three, it's usually the three to $5 million of annual revenue range. And you've got, you know, now dozens and dozens of team members um, and dozens and dozens of clients to the point where the owner can't physically touch every single team member or every single client every day. Your organization has entered the death zone because you will live or die on your ability to have systems and have that culture mm. that you've created live beyond you. And that's a very selfless thing as a leader. And it can create a lot of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. But you've got to be willing people, to make yourself irrelevant that's because right. you've created sustainability without you. And that's that some word. people are doing better than you, more than you, exciting new things than you. Like really excellent leadership is... Uh, you know, creating that culture where so much more than you ever by yourself could make happen, right? Like get out of the way and let that, let that magic happen. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and if we don't get out of the way, then we're just honestly, what are we? We're just a cult of personality. That's not leadership. Yeah. It's a cult. Um, And so, and, and this is this, this is a stuff that um, has to live in the day-to-day choices you're making as a leader to create that structure, to deliberately teach and supervise and coach, to reflect, to seize every single learning opportunity that there is, to actually do the work of noticing, as you always um, have described before, Linda, like that, you know, um, the the nuanced noticing and, and noticing a little smoke out there. Okay, before mm-hmm. it becomes a fire, l- let me rededicate some time to make sure that I'm you know, providing the right guidance and feedback. But it's, yeah, it's just so much day-to-day blocking and tackling um, and decisions that have to be made to foster that environment. I love that analogy, <laughs> that mountaineering analogy. And, and you know, you are right. Um, for lots of ABA organizations, particularly ones that were founded and owned by clinicians, there was not this notion of, oh, I'm going to grow this much. It was kind of the passion to serve the families that that find them, that led them to grow and grow and grow. And I think, so it it wasn't like a conscious decision of, I want to get to this point. In many ways, it was a little bit happenstance and it can kind of come before the leader really has dug in on how am I comfortable making myself, um, I won't say irrelevant, but let's say discretionary. Yeah. <laughs> or know? like not the most important, you know, not, not the, the most focal important. point. Yeah. And have I really doubled down on that focus of building a culture of, you know, that fully represents the infinity symbol. Everybody's mm-hmm. learning. Everybody's growing. We're all bringing it back from all direction. And it can become, I think, soul crushingly op- oppressive to those leaders who sometimes they feel like it's because, well, I don't have that business knowledge or I don't have this kind of technology solution or the right people in my organization or on this team or that team. Ultimately, it very often comes back to do you have a culture where everybody feels fully capable and confident and they are 
fully capable and Mm -hmm. confident to do what they know how to do, know what they don't know how to do, and then find someone who does. And Mm -hmm. hopefully that's a supervisor, a peer, or a supervisee to get that answer and get it done. That's right. And, and, and getting away from cultures of like blaming, mm-hmm. um, which generally is just not a productive behavior to engage in, but really importantly, like stop blaming supervisees, right? Hey, they're in an environment that you created and you're yes. responsible for as a leader. So yeah, who's a behavior gender. analyst on here? Jonathan I mean, Mueller. Honorary <laughs> behavior analyst, Jonathan Mueller. Boom. I yes, you to be, created I, that environment. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I've, I've, and I'm, I'm not a BCBA, right? Like, like, just be really clear. I, but you know what? You one thing that um that really helped me rethink this a couple of years ago is I started calculating the value of one hour of my time. Um, mm. and 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 I said, you know what? If I'm if I'm doing something, and I wouldn't pay someone that amount, why the heck am I doing it? I mean, it's easy, right, to be as an entrepreneur and, and owner of a practice and leader. You just you do everything it takes, right, to make your organization successful. So, yes, that's great. And, like, you can't be doing everything. But I, I, I've i actually, in the last few months, I've kind of rethought that. Because anyone can calculate the value of your time, right? Think about your salary or your your target salary and then divide it by, you know, 2,000 hours a year. Um, but I, I think that's actually the wrong way to measure it. And what made me realize this, um, actually, this goes way back. I, I'll never forget. I actually went on a mountaineering trip, right? As, as, my, as my wife, Kim, was pregnant. It was back in like 20, two, I think 2010 with our, our, uh, our first son, Jackson. Um, and I went on a climbing trip in the Enchantments in, um, in Washington, a beautiful mountain range. Oh, my gosh. There's glaciers and everything else. And, you know, I had kind of a scary um, uh, moment where as I'm like traversing down this, uh, this ridge, uh, my ice axe popped and and my feet popped out. And, you know, I was a very close tumble away from, um, you know, Jackson not having a dad. Mm-hmm. And and here's what it made me realize is I, I do appreciate, and I still think of this idea of what's the value of one hour of your time. But I flipped it around to think about someone who's no longer with you, a relative, someone you love. How much would they value spending just one more hour of time with you? That's the value of your time. And that's the value of your time as a leader. Um, and I think that's what, um, that, that's some of the mindset, mindset shift that's helped me rethink um, mm-hmm. how I empower my teams. And I'm sure it leads you to allocate your time differently because, you know, what you're just describing with that story and the way that you think about it is a value, mm-hmm. right? Give your time to your people, particularly the ones who value you. Mm -hmm. And um, being able to describe it that way and to say it out loud, then leads you to maybe decide, nope, I'm not going to do this activity, but I am going to spend an hour with Tyra and Linda talking about things that matter and hopefully spreading some of that wisdom to other people or even just hopefully creating an entertaining podcast. (laughs) So I, I think I think that is um, a fantastic example, a powerful one of the value of your time. There's a dollar value, but there is a, a living, breathing, people-oriented value to it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of the much more difficult to calculate positive impact that 
your time can, you know, like what ripples do you want to put in your environment? Um, That's and right. I love that. And I'm so very glad that uh, you did not tumble down that mountain, Jonathan Mueller. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. and me both. Well, this gets us back to the infinity symbol, right? And I, I truly believe that the value of our time spent um, with supervisees and with sharing our knowledge and providing feedback and helping them grow and deeply caring about them personally and professionally, um, there, there's close to an, an infinite value in that. Um, mm -hmm. And constantly reminding ourselves of all of those who came before us, like your mentor tree, the um, exercise in, in the beginning of your first book, um, which I've used so many times over the course of my career is like reflect on whom your mentors are and what they've done for you. And it's just it's it's channeling that I think humility um, and self-awareness and desire to grow mm -hmm. um, is is really important to providing high quality mentorship and is really important to instilling a value of carry this forward, please, as you are the, the, the shoulders on which the next generation of our field can stand to uh, botch an Isaac Newton term. Yep. Well, that is, a, I think, a fantastic sentiment to end on. Uh, this has been uh, certainly delightful for me um, to have you with us, Jonathan. And um, you know, I, you're doing exciting things different than the ones I'm doing, but I'm so glad someone like you is out there doing these things. And we appreciate you spending some time talking with us about, um, the fact that, you know, yes, these workbooks are about supervision for newly minted BCBAs. But a lot of the ideas are really just about how people and leaders can grow in any of their supervisory activities, whether they're the supervisor or the supervisee or even just peers like the three of us learning and growing together. Yeah, and highlighting the fact that super quality supervision is a driver for success in all areas in a business, right? Like Linda and I are out there beating the drum, you know, particularly related to staying in the career for the, you know, profession for a long time and driving good clinical outcomes. But, you know, to your point, it like there, there are no negative side effects of really locking down quality supervision at all levels. So thank you so much for sharing some of your time. I value it very, very much um, and have learned some new cool things. Thank you so much. I so value and appreciate both of you. And uh, I'm honored to spend time with you. Yay. Well, thank you everybody for tuning in and listening. Bye everyone. Bye.